Let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right in. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, again, good to see you all. Um, even though it's through a computer or television screen, I'm delighted uh, to be with you again this week. We are in Matthew chapter 21, so open your Bibles if you will, or if you want to log on, however you prefer to do it. But we are going to start today at verse 18, and we're going to go ahead and read through verse 27, and then we'll come back and take a closer look. So if you have your Bibles open, again, if you're joining us for the first time, it doesn't matter what translation of the Bible you may have. Uh, I am going to be reading from the English Standard Version. You may have a different version. That's perfectly fine. Sometimes that actually helps to illuminate the text. Uh, but I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. So 20, chapter 21, beginning at verse 18. In the morning, as Jesus was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him. And as he was teaching said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? from heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Uh, you've all heard the expression, that actions speak louder than words. Well, that's really what we see happening here in this latter part of Matthew chapter 21. That is Jesus' primary concern. He is concerned with religion uh, that is all show but no substance. Uh, the context, of course, is that Jesus has already made his final journey to Jerusalem. He's traveled from Galilee, took that long Transjordan route arrived down near Jericho, and then pushed up to Jerusalem. He has entered Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, presenting himself in, in, in an unambiguous way that he is, in fact, the Messiah. He comes riding in, mounted on that donkey in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. And then to sort of clinch the nail, so as to leave no one in any doubt as to who he really was, he then proceeded to go up and perform another very dramatic and symbolic act. He cleansed the temple. 
Uh, every Jew anticipated that when the Messiah came in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, that he would come up and he would cleanse the temple. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Now, one of the things that you'll notice in verse 18, it says, in the morning, he was returning to the city. Uh, what that tells us is that Jesus, even though he had entered Jerusalem, and over the course of this last week, spent a great deal of time in that city preaching and teaching, he didn't stay in Jerusalem. Apparently, he returned to Bethany, uh, no doubt staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. You'll recall that that's where he set out from when he first made this journey to Jerusalem. Uh, he had been there with them. Uh, John's gospel tells us this sort of sets the stage for Jesus' triumphal entry. Remember, those huge crowds that had followed Jesus up in Galilee had diminished by this point. There's only a handful of followers. But on that Palm Sunday, all of a sudden the crowds are back. There's pandemonium. And the reason for that is Jesus had just performed his most public of all miracles. And this very dramatic miracle, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, who'd been in the grave for four days, whose body had already started to decompose. We're told that large numbers of Jews had come out from Jerusalem to comfort the sisters in the loss of their brother. So this was a dramatic event. Many people saw it. And as Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, everybody was convinced that the Messiah was coming to deliver his people. So over the course of the week, apparently Jesus did not stay in Jerusalem, but the end of the day, he would withdraw to Bethany. And that's the context. We're told in the morning, he was returning to Jerusalem from Bethany, and he was hungry. And as he's making his way, he sees a fig tree by the side of the road. He goes to it in hope of finding something to eat, but finds that it is in leaf, but it has no fruit whatsoever. Now, I'm not an expert in horticulture, but I do know a little bit about fig trees. In fact, we used to have a fig tree in our backyard at the rectory in um, Beaufort. Um, figs are one of my favorite fruits. And there's a particular variety of fig tree that grows in the Near East that will oftentimes put out small, green, hard figs initially. And then later on, what it does is it produces leaves. Then after the leaves are there, which are a sign that there is actually fruit on the tree, uh, the figs will begin to develop and they will begin to ripen. Now you have to pick them very quickly, otherwise the birds will come down and, and devour the fruit. But in this particular variety of fig tree, it's interesting, the fruit appears first and then the leaves. So as Jesus is making his way toward Jerusalem, what he sees is a fig tree in leaf. And that implies that there would be fruit on the tree. Now, the, the fruit might be hard, it might be somewhat unedible, uh, but it would have been something that Jesus perhaps could have taken as nourishment. But what happens is he arrives and he finds that while the tree is in leaf, it doesn't have any fruit on it. We would call this a case of false advertising. And so as a consequence, Jesus decides to use this as an illustration for his disciples, an illustration of exactly what he had encountered now that he had entered the city of Jerusalem. He gets into the city. The first thing he does is he goes up to the temple and he cleanses it. Why? Because we're told the money changers, all of that commerce, all those commercial enterprises taking place in the, temp in the court of the Gentiles was actually what? It was all show, but it was no substance. They had taken what was intended to be God's house of prayer, and Jesus said they had turned it into a den 
of thieves. It was a kind of false advertising. So in order to impress this upon the disciples, Jesus uses this fig tree as an object lesson. And what he does is he curses it. He curses it for its false advertising, for appearing to be in fruit, but not really producing any. Now, this is all the more dramatic when you realize that in the Old Testament, the fig tree and the grapevine were often used as symbols for the nation of Israel. That was true in Psalm 105, Hosea chapter 2, Micah chapter 7. The fig tree was a symbol for the nation of Israel. And the disciples, of course, being raised as good Jews, would have understood that. That's what Jesus was complaining about when he went into Jerusalem. What he found was basically in the people worshiping there in the temple, a tree that appeared to be religious, a tree that appeared to be putting forth fruit, but when you actually examined it, there was no fruit to be found. And so Jesus curses that tree as a symbol of exactly what was going to happen to the nation of Israel, and in particular to the Jewish religious leaders, for all of their show. And believe me, the temple was a magnificent building. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. All of this activity, the, the worshiping, the sacrifices, the incense, all of that, but somehow it was devoid of any true substance. And Jesus uses this tree as an example and he curses it, symbolic of what was going to happen. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah put this very well. Here's how he described the nation of Israel, a nation that was carried off into uh, exile. Uh, we read these words, at that time declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of the officials, the bones of its priests, the bones of its prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out from their tombs. And they shall not be gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the face of the earth. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. For when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. That was the nation of Israel in the first century. In particular, it was the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes, the teachers of the law. They were exactly what was described in the Old Testament. Jeremiah is saying that is the reason why Judah and Israel were carried off into exile. They were under the judgment of God because they were a people who honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Empty religion. So what Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 21 is he was warning the disciples and he's warning us against fruitless religion. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has talked about religion bearing fruit and the necessity of bearing fruit in our own lives. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 21 and skip back to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, this is a portion of the famous Sermon on the Mount. It's been a long time since we were in Matthew chapter 7, but nevertheless, it's good to go back and refresh our memories. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them 
How? By their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? There's the image again. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus was saying, you know whether Israel is being faithful by the fruit that it produces. Look at all of that buying and the selling. Look at how people were being prevented from actually worshiping in the temple. Jesus said, you know whether they are being faithful by virtue of their actions. And he says, the same is true for you and for me. Bishop J.C. Rao was one of the great lights of the English church in the 19th century, early part of the 20th century. He was the first bishop of Liverpool. And Bishop Ryle pointed out that this problem of fruitless religion was just not a phenomenon in the first century, in Judaism. He says, it's a problem in our day as well. Here's how he put it. He said, is not every fruitless branch of Christ's visible church in awful danger of becoming a withered fig tree? High ecclesiastical profession without holiness, overweening confidence in councils, bishops, liturgies, and ceremonies, while repentance and faith have been neglected. These have ruined many a visible church in times past and may yet ruin many more. Where are the once famous churches of Ephesus and Sardis and Carthage and Hippo? They are all gone. They had leaves but no fruit. Let us remember this. Let us beware in the church. Let us beware of pride. Let us not be high-minded, but let us fear. Well, that raises a question, doesn't it? If we are supposed to be fruitful Christians, if we will be known by the fruit that we produce, if Israel was known by the fruit that it produced, and we as individual Christians as the church, the new Israel as it were, will be known by our fruit, what is the fruit of which Jesus speaks? What does it actually mean to live a fruitful life as a Christian? And again, let me just emphasize, this is a problem in our day, just as it was a problem in the first century. If you don't believe me, just think about Paul's words to Timothy. Um, Paul warned about fruitless religion in 2 Timothy. Uh, if you want to, you can go ahead. This is sort of off script, but go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 for just a moment. This is a very familiar passage, a very powerful one. Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy, and he's speaking of the godlessness that's going to appear in the last days. Now, when we hear that phrase, the last days, what that really means is that whole period of time between the Lord's ascension and his return in glory, which means he's referring to the time that we are living in. We are living in that period between the Lord's ascension and his return in glory. Now, many people want to know, are we living in the last of the last days? We don't know. But one thing is for certain, we are much closer to the Lord's return than Paul was when he wrote these words in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And look at what he says. He says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, 
unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, not loving the good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, if ever there was a description of 21st century Western culture, American culture in particular, that's it. Aren't we arrogant, abusive, disobedient to our parents, ungrateful, unholy, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God? But here's the most damning statement of all. Paul says they have the appearance of godliness, verse 5, but they deny its power. That was the problem in Paul's day. It was the problem when Jesus went into Jerusalem, and it's the problem in our day. And Jesus says, we will be known by our fruit. So what is it to live a fruitful life? What is the fruit that you and I as Christian people are supposed to produce in our lives? Are we always going to be put in leaf, but never actually in fruit? Well, the first thing to understand is that when the Bible speaks about a fruitful life, it's not talking about material success. You know, most people today, when you think of somebody who is successful, what you think of is somebody who's made a lot of money. Uh, I've said this before, you see a man riding down the street in a very expensive car, living in a very nice neighborhood, or you see somebody who uh, takes very expensive European vacations, and you say to yourself, well, he's very successful. But that's not what the Bible means by the fruitful life. In fact, if you judge Jesus' own ministry at this point by that standard, Jesus was not successful. As I said, when Jesus set out for Jerusalem, there were only a handful of followers. Most of his disciples by this point had turned back and were following him no more. And even after the resurrection, remember the people are going to turn on Jesus by the end of this week. Those shouts of Hosanna are going to become cries of crucify him, crucify him. And what is interesting is that following the resurrection even, we're told that there were only about 120 followers of Jesus. Those huge crowds in excess of 5,000 people that had initially followed Jesus up there in Galilee when he was feeding the multitude with five loaves of bread and two small fish, they've dwindled down to practically nothing. And, and we know from life that it's, it's not how you start, it's how you finish that matters. Jesus started off well, but by the world standards, he was not finishing well. He only had a handful of people. So if you judge Jesus' ministry on the basis of worldly success, you would have to say it was a failure. But again, that's not what the Bible means by a fruitful life. It means something very different. It's not material possessions. It's spiritual possessions. Paul gives us a very concrete and specific description of what truly fruitful lives look like. A turn to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, a familiar passage, I'm sure, to most of you. Paul is reminding us that if we are Christians, then the Holy Spirit resides within us. When we receive Christ as our Savior, because Jesus has ascended to the Father, he is now present in all times and in all places by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't simply come to us. Jesus resides within us. And because Christ is within us, he begins to produce in us spiritual fruit. And here's how Paul describes it. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You want to know what a fruitful life looks like? Do you want to know the kind of fruit that Jesus was seeking in the Jewish people and in the Jewish religious leaders? Do you want to know the kind of fruit that Jesus is seeking in our lives, the kind of fruit by which we will be known as his followers? It's this fruit here in Galatians. It's love. It's joy. It's peace, patience. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's faithfulness. It's gentleness. And it's self-control. Now, we need to pause here for a moment and just take some time and actually examine these various aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Because what the Bible means by these things and what our world means by these things are very different sometimes. So the first fruit uh, produced is love. Now, when we think of love today, we generally think of love in terms of an emotion. We even have a song to this effect. We say, what's love but a secondhand emotion? And we talk about love in those terms. We talk about love as something that happens to us almost by chance or by accident. You fall in love. Sometimes couples who are having difficulty in their relationship will say they are falling out of love. It's something that happens to us, as I said, by chance or by accident, like falling down a flight of stairs or falling out of a chair or falling into a mud puddle. It's a very sentimental notion, but that's not the biblical notion of love at all. Love, according to the scriptures, is hard work. That's the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in that great passage about divine love. He says, love is always patient, always kind, never boastful. You quickly realize it's, it's hard work. The kind of love that the Bible is describing is that love that we see supremely shown to us in Jesus Christ. The love of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Sent his son for what purpose? To mount the arms of the cross for us and for our salvation. When the Bible speaks of love, it's not talking about an emotion. It's talking about that love which puts others first and yourself last. It is a self-sacrificing, self-emptying kind of love. It's agape. So when you say, what does it mean to live a fruitful life? The first thing it means is to live the kind of life that is characterized by love, that kind of love, that love that never fails, that love that endures to the end. Second element of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. It's very interesting. Rarely does the Bible speak in terms of happiness. It speaks in terms of joy. And there's a profound difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is an emotion Again, very much like the way we talk about love today. Happiness is an emotion that you and I experience provided that everything is going our way. You hit the lottery, you're happy. The doctor comes in and gives you the long face, you are unhappy. But joy is something that we experience that is not contingent upon your circumstances. You can experience joy even if you are unhappy. So joy and happiness are not necessarily the same thing. It is the experience of God's presence in your life. 
So joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit. The third aspect is this, it's peace. When we think of peace, we generally think of an absence of conflict. Everything's going my way. But when the Bible speaks of peace, it doesn't simply mean an absence of conflict. It's what the Jews refer to as shalom. It is a peace of mind. It is a peace of heart. It is that peace of God which passes human understanding. Even in the midst of the storm, you can have a calm, a peace. You remember that story about how Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee with the disciples, and they found themselves caught up in a terrible storm, and the disciples were bailing madly, thinking that they were going to drown, and Jesus was asleep on a cushion in the stern of the boat. Remember that? And they went and they woke him and they said, do you not care that we perish? Jesus was calm in the midst of the storm, you see. Well, that is a supernatural grace. Let me tell you something. You can't manufacture that on your own. It is manufactured by the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. But if you've got it, that is the evidence. That is the fruit that you are, in fact, in fellowship with God. So love, joy, peace. Here's something else, patience. What is patience? Well, in the New Testament, in Romans in particular, patience might be described as long-suffering. Long-suffering. That's a good word for us today in the midst of our current pandemic, isn't it? We are getting frustrated, aren't we? I think about my grandmother. My grandmother um, uh, lived through World War II, um, my grandmother was from England. My grandfather uh, met her. He was wounded in France and sent to England to recover and met my grandmother there. And uh, eventually they were married uh, during the war. And my mother was born in England in 1946. So she is a subject of the British crown in addition to being an American citizen. But what is really interesting is to hear my grandmother tell the stories of what they had to deal with. She lived in Liverpool during the war. Liverpool, of course, was a major manufacturing center. So this was a place that was bombed along with Manchester and the east end of London. So she remembers the sirens going off. She remembers the rationing. Uh, she remembers coming home one day after the all clear was sounded and turning the corner to go to her house. And what she would see was a bomb that had crashed through the cement but had not exploded. We think we're going through a difficult time right now, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I know that we are anxious, and we have a good reason to be anxious, but we're really not suffering. So long as we can still go out, none of us are in danger of losing our homes, none of us are in danger of going hungry, there is a sense in which we need to pray for God's grace to be able to develop this spirit of long-suffering. And that's what the Bible means by patience. It, it, is, a, it is an endurance it's, it's that ability to dig down deep and to persevere. That is a fruit of the Spirit. And it doesn't just mean persevere, grin and bear it, get through it. It means perseverance in this Christian life. It is this desire to continue on. The Reformers called it the perseverance of the saints. Those who endure to the end are saved. That's a characteristic of the Christian life. Love, joy, peace, patience. Here's the fifth element, kindness, kindness. Now, what is kindness? Again, the world has its own definition, but kindness from a biblical point of view is what we might call an awareness of need. That is to say, you are aware of the needs of those around you, and you're not only aware of those needs, 
but you are willing and eager to help alleviate the need or to meet the need. Uh, we're told in John chapter 9 that Jesus on one occasion was exhausted. Uh, he had been with the crowd for some time, and he decided to cross over to a lonely place where he could get some rest. You know, everybody needs a vacation from time to time, a sabbatical, and Jesus even needed that sort of thing too. But we're told that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had his own needs, but when he saw the needs of the people, he was aware of the needs of the people, and he had a desire to somehow meet that need. He was not indifferent to the needs or to the sufferings or to the cares of his fellow man. Are we aware of the needs around us? And do we have a desire to go ahead and meet that need? That's a fruit of the Spirit. Kindness. Not just kindness towards those who are like us, but kindness in particular towards those who are very different from us. Here's the sixth element of that fruit of the Spirit, goodness. Goodness. What is goodness? Well, again, everybody in our culture has their own definition, but the Bible's definition of goodness might better be translated as godliness. In Mark chapter 10, we're told of how a man came up to Jesus with a burning question. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response to him was this. He said, why do you call me good? For there is no one who is good but God alone. So when the Bible is talking about goodness, it's not just talking about being a decent fellow. It's not just talking about being a nice lady. It's talking about living a godly life, a life that is reflective of God's character. That's what true goodness is. You want to know what a good person is? A good person is a godly person. Here's the seventh element, faithfulness. This is a fruit of the Spirit, faithfulness. Now, when we think of faithfulness, we think of loyalty. But that's really not what the biblical definition of faithfulness means. Faithfulness in the Bible, and you find this made clear in Hebrews chapter 11, is that you are full of faith. Faith, full, full of faith. The author of Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Jesus, in today's passage from Matthew chapter 21, says, if you have faith, even the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Now, what Jesus is saying there is this. It doesn't matter how much faith you have, but it does matter where you place your faith. We've talked about this before. Um, if you have a great deal of faith in thin ice, you're going to fall through if you try to walk across the lake. On the other hand, if you have a small amount of faith in thick ice, you can walk from one side to the other. It's not so much how much faith you have, but where you place it. But if you have a lot of that kind of faith, well, then you will be richly blessed, and it is a characteristic of the Christian life. Here's the eighth element of a fruitful life. Gentleness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. What is gentleness? Jesus is described as a gentle individual. When we think of gentleness, we think of weakness, oftentimes. But that's not what it means at all. 
For those of you who come from a former generation, one of the greatest compliments you could ever pay a person was that they were a gentleman, a gentleman. Uh, there is a statue of King George VI um, up at Niagara Falls on the Canadian side. And it shows King George VI, of course, who was the King of England during World War II, the father of the current queen, a man who really helped the British people be sustained in the midst of those difficult years. And I love the inscription on the bottom of the statue. It simply says, King George VI, a very gallant gentleman. What does it mean to be gentle? What does it mean to be a gentleman, a gentlewoman? It means to have a strong hand but a soft touch. It means that you have the ability to speak the truth, but you can speak the truth in love. You know, there's a difference between speaking the truth and speaking the truth in love. I'm reminded of a story about um, a man who was, um, had heard a preacher um, talk about um, preaching on damnation and judgment and the fact that those who were not in Christ were going to be separated from him from all eternity. And uh, a friend said, how can you listen to that kind of preaching? How, how can you listen to that kind of a judgment? Uh, doesn't that offend you? And he said, no, it doesn't offend me because when that preacher speaks, I can tell he's telling me the truth, but it's breaking his heart. See, that's gentleness. Speaking the truth, but speaking the truth in love. You know, the problem for Jonah in the Old Testament was that he was called to go to Nineveh and preach about God's judgment to the people there and about God's forgiveness and his mercy. Jonah didn't want to do it because he wanted the people of Nineveh to go to hell. <laughs> he didn't go there with the desire that it would break his heart. That's what it means to be a gentle person. And here's the ninth element, self-control. Paul talks about this to Timothy. He's writing again to his young friend to whom he's going to pass on the baton of leadership in the church. And he's reminding Timothy to have self-control. He said, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of self-control. What is self-control? It means discipline, yes, but it means more than that. It means confidence in God. If you are absolutely confident in God, confident that God is going to sort things out in the end, confident that God is going to defend you, you do not feel the need to defend yourself to others. When Jesus talks about living a fruitful life, when he uses this fig tree as an illustration of what a life without fruit is, is really like, this is what he wants the disciples to understand. He wants them to understand that if they're going to be his ambassadors in the world, if they are going to be a light to the nations, that's what Israel was called to be, a light to enlighten the Gentiles, then they should have fruit in their lives. They should not all be in leaf with no fruit, no substance. And a fruitful life is characterized by these things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, one more thing I want you to notice about this. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit. You will notice he does not say the fruits of the Spirit. In other words, when the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your life, he doesn't just produce one or two of these. 
So you got Carol Robinson and she gets love and joy. And, and Emily Whipple gets goodness and faithfulness. And, and Rachel Murphy gets gentleness and self-control. And, and Jeff Miller gets patience. Now, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit. Now, yes, these are individual aspects, but it's like a clump of grapes. It's not just an individual grape. It's a clump of grapes. When the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your life and begins to produce fruit, he produces all of these things in varying degrees. So if you want to know what the fruitful life looks like, it is a life that is characterized by all of these things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In other words, the fruitful life is the Christ-like life. Because the only person in all of history who was characterized by all of these things in a perfect degree was Jesus himself. So if you want to know if you're living a fruitful life, one way is to take a look at your life. Do you see those things as characteristics? Do you see yourself growing in these things? Now, that's not to say that you see these things perfectly reflecting your life in every respect. I mean, I will be the first one to admit that patience is the one thing that I struggle with. And this technology has not helped me. So we all struggle with some of these. But what you should see is some fruit. You know, the problem with this fig tree was that there was no fruit. We're going to see that if there is some fruit, what God will do is he will prune us so that we produce more fruit. But if we are in Christ, there should be fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit is what a fruitful life looks like. That's the fruitful life. Now, this, this raises the question. As soon as I can advance to the next slide. There we go. How do we become fruitful? All right, we're supposed to live a fruitful life. We're not supposed to be like this fig tree. How do we live a fruitful life? What exactly does that look like? And how can we be sure that we can produce this kind of fruit in our own lives? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in John chapter 15. If you are concerned about living a fruitful life, the way to do that is to take a look at John chapter 15. So if you have the time, please put your finger there in Matthew and turn over to John for just a moment. Now let's take a look at what Jesus says in John chapter 15. Great passage. Remember, uh, Jesus said that the fig tree represented Israel. In the Old Testament, we saw the fig tree or the grapevine were oftentimes symbols for the nation of Israel. In John chapter 15, Jesus says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, there's the expression again, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that, word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But this, by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much proof, fruit, and so prove yourselves to be my disciples. Let me say that last part again. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It's exactly what Jesus had said back there earlier in Matthew when he said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. By the fruit that is produced in your life, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, you prove to the world that you are, in fact, Christ's disciples. People sometimes come up to me and say, how can I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I really am in Christ? How do I know that if I were to die today, I would go to be with the Lord? The only way to answer that question is to ask the question, is there fruit in your life? Do you see these characteristics, the Christ-like life being produced in you? Are you growing in grace? Are you growing in holiness? Now, this is a powerful statement here in John chapter 15. It's the last of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Uh, you'll recall that in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses encountered God in the burning bush, and God said, you're going to deliver my people from their bondage here in Egypt, where they're making bricks without straw. And Moses said, I'm going to go to your people, but they're going to say, who is this God? What shall I tell them? Who is your name? The Egyptians have all kinds of names for their gods. And God replied, you shall tell them, I am who I am. That was, that was the sacred name for God. You and I can say, the best we can say is, I am what I am by the grace of God. God simply says, I am. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is self-existent. I am. This was the most sacred name for God. It was the name that no Jew was permitted to utter. Theologians refer to it as the tetragrammaton, the sacred name of God. But what's interesting is that Jesus was not ashamed to claim that title for himself over and over again. He had a whole series of statements called the I am statements, which everybody understood was a claim to divinity. Now, it got him into a lot of trouble, particularly with the Jewish religious leaders, but they were unambiguous claims to his divinity. In John chapter 6, you have Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me shall never hunger. Whoever trusts in me shall never thirst. In John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will never walk in darkness. That's an extraordinary statement. If you're hungry, if your soul is ravished, come to me and I'll satisfy you. If you're walking in darkness and you don't know where to turn, come to me. I'm the light. In John chapter 10, he said, chapter 10, he says, I am the door. I'm the door to the sheep pen. If you want to be a part of God's flock, come through me. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, he says, lays down his life for the sheep. In John chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall never die. In John chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And here in John chapter 15, we have the last of these I am statements. He says, I am the true vine. That is to say the true vine versus the false vine. He said, if you're looking for salvation, don't look for it in the religion of the Israelites or, or, or the religion of the Jewish religious leaders. They're all in leaf, but they are not producing any fruit. I'm the true vine. And the way that you produce fruit in your lives is by what? Abiding in me. Now, there's a catch here. 
in order to abide in Christ, you have to first be in Christ. You have to first be in Christ. Anybody that's ever worked on an engine or a motor knows that whether it's a lawnmower engine or a car engine, you know that there are at least two things that are necessary in order to make the car run. You've got to have a carburetor and you've got to have a spark plug. You've got to have fuel and you've got to have a spark. If you've got a spark but no fuel, you're not going anywhere. And if you've got fuel but no spark, you're not going anywhere. Both of these things are necessary. And Jesus is saying that is what is necessary in order for us to live fruitful lives. We have to, first of all, be in Christ. That is to say, you have to have a relationship with him. And the second thing is you have to continue to abide with him. You have to be in Christ. If you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that's the first step. But once you do have that relationship with him, you need to abide in him on a daily basis. That's the way that fruit is produced. Now, what does it look like to abide in Christ? Well, a number of practical things here. First of all, you've got to spend time with Christ. That's true of anybody. If you want to get to know somebody well, if you want to become some like someone, if you have a hero, for example, or somebody that you look up to, the only way that you're going to become like them is if you spend time with them. So if you want to become Christ-like, and becoming Christ-like, you begin to produce fruit in your life and thereby prove yourself to be his disciples, you need to spend time with Christ. That means Bible reading and prayer. It's through his word primarily, not exclusively, but primarily through his word that God speaks to us. And it's not just a once a week sort of thing. I, I'm delighted that so many of you come out for these Bible studies, but that's not enough. While I can certainly help you grow in your knowledge and your understanding of the scriptures, Bible reading, Bible study is something that you need to do on an individual basis daily. Spend time in God's word. Ask for the guidance of the Holy Spirit that he might speak to you through his word. God sometimes speaks to us through hymns. Sometimes he speaks to us by the Holy Spirit, just speaking to our spirits. Sometimes God speaks to us through other individuals. But the primary means by which he speaks to us is through his word. That's why we say at the end of the reading on Sunday, the word of the Lord. You want to hear God speak in your life? You want to hear a word from God? Open his word. So in order to become Christ-like, and once you become Christ-like, you abide in him, then he begins to produce fruit in your life, you need to be studying his word. You need to be spending time in prayer. Prayer needs to be a priority in your life. Be prayer warriors. Third thing is this, you need to spend time with fellow believers. Fellowship in the body. That's the danger of what we're dealing with right now. And that's why I'm so thankful for this technology. As frustrating as it may be, it gives us the opportunity to spend time together as believers. Iron sharpens iron. The author of Hebrews says, do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. You see, it's in the context of the community of faith. It's in the context of the church. It's in the body of Christ that God grows us to be like Christ. We need each other. Cats were created to be solitary creatures. Human beings were not. Fourth thing that you need is worship. Worship is a wonderful corrective lens. Because worship is not about us. 
Now, Bible study, classes like this, all of these things are designed to help us grow in our knowledge and love of the Lord. But what worship does is it takes us out of the picture and it puts God's first. That's one of the reasons I love our liturgy. On Holy Communion Sundays, the first words out of the celebrant's mouth are not these, good morning, with the focus being on us. The first words out of the celebrant's mouth are what? Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or blessed be he who forgives our sins, whatever it may be. The focus is on God and on what God does for us. And the supreme example of worship is Holy Communion, that he may abide in us and we in him. So if you're going to abide in Christ, you have to have a relationship with Christ. But if you're abiding in Christ, if you're in Christ, then the Holy Spirit will begin to produce in you a Christ-like life. He'll begin to characterize your life by those fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But there is something else that God will do to make you more fruitful. He will from time to time prune you. And maybe that's a little bit of what we're dealing with right now. God is pruning us. He's, he's stripping away the things that we really don't need in order that we might recognize the things that really matter, that we do need. You know, maybe it's because we have been forced to be away from each other that when we come back together again, we'll appreciate each other even more. And the time that we share together. So discipline is a part of God's plan to make us more fruitful. Love is discipline. But there's something else that is required in order for us to be fruitful Christians. God wants to remove those sucker shoots from our lives. Uh, some years ago, Kristen and I took a trip um, out to California. I was doing a wedding out there. It was one of those destination weddings. Um, normally, I'm not a big fan, but I was a big fan on that occasion. Uh, we went out there to Napa Valley and Sonoma, and we uh, rode the wine train through the wine country. It was a wonderful time, and I learned a great deal about grapes. We visited a number of the vineyards, the great Mondavi Vineyard out there and so forth, and learned a great deal about grapes. And one of the things that I realized is that very early, particularly with young grapevines, somebody has to come along and prune. You have to cut off what they call sucker shoots or laterals. These are shoots that come off the vine and they suck all of the energy away from the main vine and they produce a lot of leaves, but no fruit. And you have to cut those sucker shoots off so that all of the energy goes not to making leaves, but to making the grapes. Well, let me just ask the question and we'll probably pause and, and stop right here. What are the sucker shoots in your life? What are all those things that distract you from the Bible study and the prayer and the fellowship and the worship? What are those things that are draining all of the energy away from abiding in Christ and living fruitful lives and are just producing leaves in your life? Now, the sucker shoots in your life may be different than the sucker shoots in my life, but let's be honest, there are all kinds of things that are drawing away our attention and our energy and preventing us from spending the time with Christ that is necessary if we are going to grow in grace. What are the sucker shoots in your life? 
because God wants us to cut those things off. That we may be in Christ, and by abiding in Christ, being in Christ, he might, by the Holy Spirit, begin to produce in us fruit. The fruit that endures, the fruit that lasts. He doesn't want us to be a people who are false advertising. He wants us to be reflections of his son, Jesus Christ. This raises a question. Did the disciples understand the lesson? Jesus, by cursing this fig tree, was trying to teach them this lesson about living fruitful lives. Did they get it? I don't know if they got it on this occasion. Because verse 20, if you go back now to Matthew, verse 20 says the thing that they were most impressed about was not the message that Jesus was trying to convey, but the fact that the fig tree withered so quickly. Their only question was not, oh, well, Lord, help us to be more fruitful, or Lord, how can we be more fruitful? Why are the, the Pharisees like this? Why do they seem to be all in leaf but not in fruit? Instead, their question is, why did the fig tree wither so quickly? At which point you would expect Jesus to say, oh, you stupid, dumb disciples. How much longer do I have to be with you? But what I love is the fact that Jesus is so patient. He doesn't get upset with them. And simply, instead, he simply talks to them. He says to them, look, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Jesus' response at first appears like a digression. Like he suddenly left the subject of genuine religion, fruitful lives, and he begins to talk about prayer because prayer was an important subject for him. But I don't think that's actually the case. I think it was Jesus' way of answering their question, but at the same time reminding them of the need for a fruitful life. Because how did this chapter begin? This chapter began with Jesus going into Jerusalem, going up to the temple, and cleansing it. Why? Because what was supposed to be a house of prayer had become a den of robbers. The problem for the temple was that it was all leaves and no fruit. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be fruitful lives, you need to be faithful people. You need to be people of prayer. You need to abide in me and I in you. And he says, if that is the case, you will bear much fruit. And so prove yourselves to be my disciples. How about you? Are you living fruitful lives? God doesn't want us to honor him with our lips, but our hearts to be far from him. He longs to use us in a mighty way. God has a plan for your life. He has a purpose for you. If you're a Christian today, your life is not without value or significance. God has a plan for you. And it doesn't matter if you're young. It doesn't matter if you're old. If you are still here, you still have a part to play. And the way you fulfill God's plan for your life is by being fruitful. So that when others see the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control in us, what they really see is the life of Jesus Christ 
And in coming to know him, they come to know him whom to know is life everlasting. And all of that as a result of a little lesson on horticulture. <laughs> Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this story of the fig tree. When we first look at it, it almost seems out of character for Jesus, as though Jesus is being petulant by cursing this tree, but that was not the case at all. It's a powerful illustration of what was going on in Israel in the first century, and unfortunately what goes on in the life of many Christians today. They profess Jesus with their lips, but there's no fruit in their lives. God, grant us the grace to be fruitful. Grant us the grace to come to know Christ, to be in him, and having come to know him, to abide in him. Prune, Lord, cut off those sucker shoots from our lives that would seek to draw us away from you. Prune us that we may be fruitful people for your glory and for your honor. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.